0: Thank you all for joining in on this event today. My name is Ilka Gleibs and I'm Associate Professor at the Department of Psychological and Behaviour Science. It's my great pleasure to welcome and introduce Jennifer Petrullieri as our speaker today. Jennifer is an Associate Professor of Organizational Behaviour in at INSEAD. Her research include, areas include identity, leadership development and qualitative research, She has widely published in the top journals in the field, such as Administrative Science Quarterly, Academy of Management Review, and many others. Jennifer earned a PhD in Organizational Behavior from INSEAD, and she also holds an MBA from IMD Switzerland, and a Bachelor's degree in Genetics from Nottingham University. Prior to joining INSEAD, she was a postdoctoral fellow of Organizational Behavior at Harvard Business School. Jennifer was shortlisted for the Talent Award 2017 and was also shortlisted for the Radar New Thinker Award in 2015. Um, By Thinker 50, the ranking of the most influential management authors in the world. She was also included among the world's best 40 business school professors under 40 by Poets and Quants. She lives in France with her husband and two children, and her own experience as one part of a professional couple might have informed her writing of the books Couples at Work. The book, which was published last year, and that Jennifer will talk about in just a moment, is an excellent example of a book that is both interesting and engaging to read, but also based on solid research and theorizing. It resonates with me as a person and half of a couple trying to negotiate a career and a relationship, and it also speaks to me as a social and organizational psychologist who's interested in identity and career development looking at careers as a lifelong development that is embedded in our relationships with partners and family is an important perspective and theoretical innovation. Reading the book led to interesting conversations with my partner and friends, but also with students in our MSc and organization, Social Psychology, about very practical issues on how you can fra- have frank discussions about your own career priorities and how we negotiate these vis-a-vis our partners. Thus, the book is, a, is as much an academic book about career development as it is, gives practical advice on how to manage and negotiate your love and your work. Jennifer has also launched a survival series, a series of videos in which she applies the principles from the book to couples that work at home. A useful guide in a situation of renewed lockdown and restrictions that many of us face who are joining in today. Before I hand over to Jennifer, a few housekeeping notes. Jennifer will talk for about 25 to 30 minutes. We will then take questions from the audience. Questions should be posted in the Q&A function. Please do not use the chat function. The audience can also like questions, and we will aim to answer questions that are most popular. Uh, When you have a question, please state your name and where you're from. The event will be recorded as a podcast. Please be aware of that when asking your questions. So without further ado, welcome Jennifer Petrilleri.
1: Thanks, elke and it's great to be with you all today. Thanks for joining me. So as Elke said, in the next 25, 30 minutes, I'm going to try and give you just a few of the insights from my book that I hope will help you to marry love and work. But let me first start by talking about the phenomenon we're looking at, which is the rise of working couples, which is really one of the guiding phenomenon of the last 20-30 years. What we see, let's take England as an example, 70% of professionals are part of working couples, so the majority of the workforce. And this rises year on year. And it's worth taking a step back and thinking why, because very often those of us in working couples or if you talk to someone in a working couple, they'll say, it's hard work. But there's obviously some benefits right, driving this trend. The first reason um, is obviously economic. There's clearly economic benefits when two people work. And we can see that particularly now with the COVID crisis, with the increasing amount of layoffs. If we're in a couple where both partners work, we have that buffering and we're able to keep the family going. What's less often talked about are the relationship benefits. So what we see is your lowest chance of divorce, 47% below the base rate, occurs when your partner and yourself both earn roughly the same and contribute roughly equally to the household. So that's a huge decrease in the probability of of divorce. And the reason that is, is people tend to, on average, have close relationships when they're in a working couple. They can understand all the different aspects of each other's lives. And that tends to lead to stronger couples and stronger family units. So these are all great benefits, but as all of you know who are in working couples, it's not all a rosy picture, and it can sometimes be really difficult. And I'm sure you, like me, have got to stages where the cracks appear and you feel like, I just can't keep this working, right? And when we say this, we either mean our careers, like it's just too much to juggle these careers, or something's got to give in our relationship. And I became, as a scholar of careers and leadership, really interested in these moments, which can make or break people's careers and obviously can make or break people's relationships as well. And I was really interested in digging underneath and thinking what's going on here and is there a kind of formula, if I can put it that way, that working couples can apply to get them through these rough patches and help them both thrive in their careers and their relationships. And that's the research I want to talk to you about today. So, if you're interested in the research, the book has a lot more of the kind of nerdy stuff in, but just the a quick overview, the research tracks um, more than 100 couples, and they were sampled for diversity. So there's couples from couples that have just got together through to couples who've been together 40, 50 years, people early in their careers, later in their careers, lots of different industries, professions. They're really trying to sample for diversity and also lots of different nationalities. So that's just a quick word on the sample. So first of all, let me tell you what this is not about. And it's not about the thing which we most often think it is about, which is about the practicalities. So most often when I talk to people, they'll say, you know, it's just, we can't figure out how to do the childcare or we really need to sync our calendars to make this work or, you know, our travel schedules aren't overlapping. Now, don't get me wrong. These practical issues are important and they cause us pain. But what I found in my research Um, very clearly was that they were really the symptom of a deeper problem as opposed to the problem itself. And so I'm going to use the classic iceberg metaphor to demonstrate this, that these practicalities are the tip of the iceberg. They're what we see, they're what we focus on, they're what we kind of put our attention on. However, if you as a couple are just focusing on that level, you will have your titanic moment, right? And crash into the bottom of the iceberg And something is going to sink, probably one of your careers and potentially your relationship. So the book really talks about what is the stuff underneath the iceberg. And I'm going to try and give you just a few nuggets of those things under the iceberg today to get you thinking about and some tips at the end of things you might want to start thinking about in your own couple and working on to help make this run a little bit more smoothly. And what I found was that couples who focused on these things under the iceberg It really helped with the practicalities. Now, of course, nothing makes for a perfect life, right? Kids get sick, someone gets laid off, we have difficult choices. So I'm not thinking there's some perfect working couple out there. But what I think about is it's all about how we deal with those and can we get through them in a way that keeps us both on the track we want to be on and more or less happy, more or less most of the time. So what I found um, and the overarching structure of my research and my book looks at this, this idea that, in fact, these cracks appear at rather predictable times. And there are three major periods where we face these big difficulties and this stuff under the iceberg rears at head and how we deal with it matters. And I call these in the book, Three Transitions. And I'm gonna go through them quite quickly. And I'm gonna just give you an insight from each transition. And I'm going to focus most of my time on the first transition because I have an inkling it's where the majority of people are on this call. So the first transition comes, it's not linked to age or career stage, it's linked to our relationship stage. So it usually comes in the first, say, five to eight years of our relationship. So I'm imagining many of you now might be in that honeymoon phase of the early days of our relationship, or we can certainly remember it not too long ago. Now, if we think about the early days of our relationship, why is it so good? It's so good because really we're not in a relationship yet. We have these two parallel lives. So we have our careers, which we're building. We have our family. We have our friends. We have our own hobbies. And we've layered on top a lovely relationship. What's not to like, right? It's great. And it's great because we've really not faced a hard choice yet, a choice where we have to Look at combining these parallel paths. But sooner or later, and usually within the first five to eight years, this happens. Now, this choice might be, say, a geography choice. One of you gets offered a job in another country or on the other side of the country. What do you do, right? You can't continue having parallel tracks. One person needs to follow. One person may need to give up on that job option. You may need to look at a commuter relationship. You've got to make a hard choice. It might be you have your first child. For those of you with children, you'll know that's the end of parallel living. And what these do is really make us think, OK, how do we build a genuinely joint life together? And the tendency, of course, is to focus on the practicalities. We focus on childcare. We focus on geography. We focus on money. And what my research has shown us, of course, they're important things. But they're really what's happening at this stage in a couple is something deeper. And what's happening that's deeper is a question of whose career takes priority. And it's something that very few couples discuss, but all couples agree on. And the issue comes when we agree without talking about it. We fall into a pattern of privileging one person's career over the other, which later leads to resentments because we didn't really talk it through and agree it. And if we think of career prioritization, there are three basic models. The first is, the the reason I'm using chess pieces here is not so it's gendered. Um, The first is primary, secondary. And this basically means the person in the primary position, their career consistently takes priority. So they would lead geographic moves, their work travel would take priority, and they give that bit more energy and time to work. Well, the person in the secondary career still has a career, but they would take a bit more of the slack at home. This is perhaps the more traditional model. I imagine if you have parents or grandparents who were working couples, they would probably have this one and it would probably have been your father or grandfather in the primary position. The gender split no longer occurs that way, but this is what we can think of as the classic model. The second model is a model of turn taking, where at any one point in time, one of us is primary and one of us is secondary, and then we swap positions. And if we think about it, that gives us both a chance to have a shot at our career and also a shot at investing at home. And what's really interesting at the moment, if we look at the research, is that there's an equality of ambition. So men and women both have the same ambition levels in their career, which we know about. What less often gets talked about is men and women now have the same level of ambition for their families and their private lives. So when we go back to maybe our fathers, certainly our grandfathers, They probably didn't want to invest as much in their children as as our grandmothers did. That's no longer the case. We see the desire for equal investment. So this allows both partners to invest in both domains. And the last is what I call double primary. So this might be that you decide some kind of boundary. So let's say we're going to stay in London and we're not going to leave the London area. But within that, we can both have full careers and this is a more modern version. Now, I'm going to ask a little question and I'm going to ask you to tap your p- reply into the Q&A box, which I can see here. And the question is this, which of these three do you think is most successful? And when I say successful, I'm talking about subjective success. So when I ask people how successful and happy do you feel in your careers and in your relationship, they'll answer hi to both of those. So take apart, turn-taking, turn-taking, lots of turn-takers here, Okay. Um, yeah, and so it's a really interesting question. I'm just going to quickly scroll down to see what the rest of you are saying. Double primary, thank you, thank you, thank you. So there's a bit of a mix, but we're mainly double primary turned. No one is no one is primary, secondary? Interesting. So I'll, I'll tell you the answer in a minute. But of course, when we look at all three, there's there's benefits and downsides to all three. So the benefit of primary, secondary is clarity. And for those of you who have children, yeah, that's a big benefit right it's very clear kind of who's in charge at home and and who and who is the primary linchpin there the benefit of turn taking is obviously we both get a shot and the benefit of double primary is hopefully we'll both get a shot at the same time so let me tell you um let me tell you what i found so when i first did my analysis i found that it was the double primary group who on average felt more successful now there are clearly successful couples in the other two buckets as well but just on average a bit more and my first reaction was yes because that's my model (laughs) and then as any social scientist will tell you you know the first results you get from your data set you have to be very careful of because they usually tell you what you want to hear so I thought you know can it really be that one model suits everyone so I took the successful couples from all three buckets and looked across for a commonality and I found one thing which was that the couples who were successful were couples who had very explicitly negotiated and agreed their career prioritization model. And the reason there were more of them in this double primary model was that it kind of forces you into those conversations, right? You have to negotiate these boundaries. It forces you into it. And what I love about this finding is essentially it does not matter what you pick but it matters that you very consciously negotiate it and choose it together. So it doesn't matter which one of these. And what's really interesting is when I looked at the objective success, right? What's your chance of getting high up in your career? It also didn't matter which of these you had. Even if you were in a secondary position, you could still go very high. But what really mattered was that this was negotiated and agreed. And this is something that many of us in that early stage fail to do we fall into an arrangement. This can very often happen when we have our first child and very often it's the woman who falls into the secondary position, not always. But what happens when we don't discuss and don't agree is those resentments build up and then they can lead to a rupture in the couple and very often a rupture in one of our careers. So if you're in your first transition in those early stages of your relationship, And even if you're further on and you look back and think, "Mm, I'm not sure we really did negotiate that, the first thing I would say is do it. This is a really important conversation to have with your partner and figure it out. And again, it doesn't matter what you pick, but it matters that you pick. And if you're interested in this idea of how you make hard choices, I have a TED talk on this topic, which actually came out on Monday, which is exactly on this decision. How do we make this hard choice? So you might wanna look there for further information. Okay, hang on a second. My clicker's on the wrong place. Um, So let me talk a little insight from the second transition, but let me also say in the first transition, lots of other things to negotiate. Um, This is just one of them. Henry, um, how does this apply to same-sex couples? It's no different. And I I didn't say in the diversity, I had plenty of same-sex couples in the sample as well. It doesn't make any difference. Obviously, the gender roles are less um, ingrained in same-sex couples, but the principle is the same. The couples who negotiate and agree are the couples who do well, and the couples who don't are the couples who falter. So very little difference for this one thing. Okay, second transition is is about career and life stages not so the first transition is very much about the stage of our couple this is very much about life stage and this is the stage where Ilka and and I are now (laughs) I'm gonna out her as being in her 40s like I am Um, and this tends to come mid-career so if we think about the first two decades of our career our 20s and 30s it's a time when we're really striving so we're building our career we're building relationships some of us are building a family with children as well crazy days right we're running 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 what often happens in when we get to that mid career stage which is usually around the mid 40s is we sort of take a step back and think is this really what I want and and for some of us that's kind of a really big existential question for others of us it's more of a feeling of restlessness just like it's not quite feeling right anymore you know I want to explore different options And what happens is this is a really stressful time in couples. And actually what we see is the divorce rate peaks hugely at this kind of life stage, this life and career stage. And it peaks because it's really threatening when our partners start to ask these questions. So it might start off as career and then like, oh, I'm not sure about the choices I made and how are we living here. And like, I'm not sure this is the life I want to live. And it's really hard not to interpret that as, my goodness, is this my fault? Maybe they they don't like me anymore. Maybe they regret having, you know, got together with me and formed a relationship with me. And so it's a very threatening time. And the couples who do well here, again, there's lots of elements. I'm just picking one to share with you right now. Are couples who shift the way they support each other. Now I'm showing you this very British picture of what we think of as supporting couples, which is this idea of tea and sympathy, right? A good couple is one in which your partner plumps up your self-esteem and makes you feel good about yourself and tells you everything's fine, don't worry. Now, of course, we all love that kind of support, but it turns out it's actually not only useless, it's harmful when we're in this kind of transition that we're really thinking through different directions. Because what that kind of support does is it keeps us in our comfort zone, which feels lovely, but when we're looking to make a transition, the one thing that can help us doing that is to get out of our comfort zone and to try new things, to experiment, to explore and to reflect. And this kind of support really keeps us squashed down. And it's very frequent when you talk to people at this kind of stage that they'll say things like, I feel a bit claustrophobic in my relationship or, you know, I feel a bit boxed in. And it's very often because of this well-meaning but misdirected support. So how do we need to think about supporting each other in a different way? And this is especially useful for those of you at my career stage, but even if you're not, if you're more advanced than me, but also if you're earlier on in your career, it's worth thinking about how you can foster this other kind of support in your relationship. And this other kind of support is what I call a secure based relationship. Now, those of you who are scholars of attachment theory will notice this term, it's it's and why am i showing a sort of swiss castle because it's a really good representation of a secure base the secure base is essentially somewhere where you do feel very secure where you can get that tea in sympathy but the idea is that you move away from it to explore in this case the lovely territory around in our psychological sense the, the our development goals right where do we want to go where do we want to explore what are the options we want to explore Now, what does this look like in a couple? This is more like a loving kick rather than that loving cuddle. So yes, the support is there, but rather than saying, don't worry, everything's going to be fine. It's like, okay, what are you going to do about that? And don't sit in the comfort zone, get out there and try something new. So it's a push away from the relationship and away from the comfort zone and an encouragement to really, Try something a little bit risky, right? A little bit dangerous, a little bit out of the ordinary. And this can feel very counterintuitive in a relationship because when we feel our partner's uncertain, our tendency is to hold them close. And this is the opposite. It's almost a push away in a loving way, not a not a shove. But this kind of support really makes the difference in this transition. And couples who can transfer, transfer their support in towards this more mature kind of support of couples who really do well. So I, I know I've got seven minutes left. <laughs> Otherwise, Ilka's going to start looking at me funny. So I'm going to say just a couple of things about the third transition. And then I'm going to round up with some advice and then we'll go to q and A. So do tap your, your questions in the, in the Q&A box and I'll be happy to take them. So the last transition, the last big transition, comes a little bit later in life when our social roles are changing. So if we have been parents, our children are probably leaving home, so we have some more freedom. But there's also a sense of loss with that, right? I'm no longer that hands-on mum, that hands-on dad. We're also at a stage where our careers are plateauing. So hopefully, many of you are in that lovely career acceleration phase now, where you're the bright young thing, you're a high potential, you're racing up the ladder. It never lasts forever. (laughs) There always gets to a stage, even for those of us who are on the steepest career trajectory, that starts to plateau a little bit and at this point it can feel this sense of loss and goodness i'm no longer the hands-on parent i'm no longer the bright young thing If i'm lucky i'm mentoring them you know what am i going to do with my life who am i now i'm not those things and it's really a set of identity questions but what's really interesting among this sense of kind of loss and dead ends is this, this huge opportunity for couples so for those of you at my career stage or younger if you can get through a day holding in mind your career, your relationship, and your family—if you have one—it's a good day. You can collapse into bed feeling like, "Okay, today was good. I need to repeat tomorrow." And and very often, I know we have um, so my girlfriends and I—we all turn forty-five this year—and we have had a call the other week for someone's birthday party, and we also saying, you know, eventually we'll be able to dot dot dot, you know, do volunteering, work for not-for-profit, blah blah blah. It's just not happening now, right? We're in that really busy time of life. But when we get to this third transition, we can really broaden our horizons as a couple and start to look at community, friends, different structures of careers. And what I talk about in the book for any of you who are in this third transition is how our careers are changing in a way that we can really take advantage of this later stage of career in a way that we never could. So if you're in that third stage, I really encourage you to dip into the book and look at the strategies for recrafting your life and your identity in this later stage to really have um, kind of second honeymoon in terms of your career and hopefully your relationship as well. So I want to talk a little bit about some generalities and then we'll go to questions. So what do we need to do about all of this? the first thing to say is why do couples fail in the long term? And what I found was, although there were lots of different ways to succeed, couples almost always failed for one reason. And it was that they accumulated a persistent imbalance of power. Now, what does that mean in a couple? You have power in a couple when you're empowered by your partner to go after your dreams, your ambitions, your goals, whatever you, whatever you want to call them. And if we think very early on in a relationship, we tend to be pretty even. We know what each other wants and we support each other. But very often over time, a couple of tips such that it's set up to support one person's dreams while the other person becomes the supporting act. And this really does kill relationships. Now, this is not about who earns the most and who has higher status or a fancier job. It's very much around whose ambitions, whose dreams are honoured in a couple. So this is really important. So how do we make sure we can honour each other's dreams and ambitions and not tip to this imbalanced status? Well, I said at the beginning, I was looking for this kind of um, formula that we could all do. And of course, as I said, I didn't find one. There's no set um, career prioritisation model, but there is something that can really help all couples get through whatever they face, the challenges they face being a working couple. And that is developing the habit of deep conversations. Now, what do I mean by that? I don't mean psychotherapy, although that can be great. Um, I mean these conversations that get below the practicalities that are not just about childcare or logistics or sinking calendars, that are about these questions of what do we want out of life? How are we going to prioritise? How are we going to support each other? And how are we going to set up our lives in a way that both of us can get a bit of what we want? You know, we we know we can't have everything we want all the time. But what's important in couples is that we both feel we've had a shot at some of the things we want. And so what I'm going to suggest to you is that the most important thing you can do with your partner and you can do it tonight. And if it helps, you can blame it on me. <laughs> is to um is to sit down and think about what are the principles of your relationship? What are the things that really matter to you? Not about specific decisions, but what is like the foundation of your lives together? And on top of that, all the decisions you make should align with it, right? To build a house on top of it. So the few things you want to talk about, one is what matters most. Now, we, we all call this different things. Some of us call it values, some ambitions, goals. It doesn't matter what you call it. But it's essentially about if you project yourself forward, say, five years, what are the things that are really important for you in that period? Some may be professional, some may be personal, some may be lifestyle. Understanding that about your partner and them understanding it about you is so important because it means you will be basing your decisions on the most important criteria. The second once you've agreed that is some boundaries. How do we limit our choices? Now, of course, many of us don't have as many choices as we would like, but what we see in the research is that more choices are not necessarily better. More choices make it harder to choose and more likely we regret our choices. So if we can bound our choices by saying, okay, these are the places we would realistically live and work and these places are out. How much travel is too much work travel? How much time is too much time at work? How do we manage the boundary between our little nuclear family and our, um, our families of origin? All these things can really manage uncertainty in a couple and therefore manage anxiety. And the last thing, and I think I have three seconds to say it, so I may steal another 10, <laughs> is to talk about what are the things we're worried about? This is the thing that most couples neglect to talk about. But if our partner understands our concerns, they're much more likely to be sensitive around them and help us manage them. So I think I'm going to pause there, Elka, and we'll go to question and answers. So I'm going to take my, my share, slide share off, right? Yeah. Okay. All right. Thank you so much, Jennifer. That was super enlightening,
0: And we already have a few questions here. So I might ask the first question is actually from someone who isn't here today, but who asked me to ask you this question. And it's from Adam, who's a student in our MSC in organization social psychology. And he asked, How, if at all, does work from home affect the transition stages and maybe the efficiency of a primary secondary model, for example? So do you anticipate
1: some changes while we all work from home? Yeah, so it's a really good- it's a really good question. So what I've been finding, and I have done some research around couples working from home, is that um, it's amplifying or it's shining a magnifying glass on the deals we have. So it's becoming very apparent where things are working well and things aren't working well. And what's really interesting, if you look at the statistics, after the first lockdown, we saw two peaks. We saw a peak in divorces and we saw a peak in the birth, in the pregnancy rate, excuse me, not not quite birth yet. It takes a little bit of time for that. And and this bifurcation of couples is really this idea of this magnifying glass. So it is definitely showing, for example, in those couples who think they're double primary, but then it becomes evident that one is really taking the load at home. And when we're in the house twenty four seven, we can really see that. And so these dynamics are coming up. And so let's take the idea of a double uh, primary-secondary partnership. First of all, primary, secondary does not mean that the primary person does nothing at home and the secondary does everything. You know, it's, it's a bit more balanced than that. But I think we do need to renegotiate a little bit in this extraordinary time and think about how might we need to split the r- load a little bit differently. But also think about what that load is. So, if, so for those of us who have children, I'm sure if you're like me, you approach the first lockdown in this mentality of, okay, we just need to carry on and try and keep the schedule and everything. And we soon realized that wasn't gonna work. And it's not gonna work because it's not what our children need, right? Our children are thrown out of their worlds and into another world and they need a set of different things. So it's not just about thinking of the load in our couple, but also thinking if we're parents, you know, okay, what do our children really need from us now? It's probably quite different. So we need to think about how to provide that. And also what support do we need from each other in our couple? That's probably quite different as well. So I think there's not just a renegotiation of who does what, but also who needs what from each other. Okay,
0: great. There's another question from Rebecca Latouche. I hope I pronounced that name right. She asks, please, can you talk about the variance in the data between different ethnic groups and income
1: brackets if that was part of your research? Yeah, yeah, it was. (laughs) Thanks for that question. So the first thing to say is there's less variance than you would expect is the first thing to say. I think... On some areas, we know there are huge cultural differences, but when it comes to the dynamics of relationships, there are less than you would expect. The two key dynamics concern gender. So one is how split are the genders in our culture or in our social group, because we know sometimes we can take extremes of cultures. Let's take Japan, for example, which tends to have quite a strong division of the expectations of men and women. And we can make that bold divide between maybe Japan and the UK, which is a little bit more balanced. But we also can see these across social classes as well. So this is one thing which can really affect is the the kind of um, gender roles. And the other thing which we talk less about is the role of our extended family. So in some cultures, let's take China, for example, where there are four grandparents for every one grandchild, there's a huge amount of support, right, for, for, for parents. And I remember interviewing some Chinese couples and they say, you know, my issue is not the child care. My issue is everyone wants to do the child care. And how do I pass the child around to manage everyone's demands? And so these are the two factors which do differ between ethnic groups. We know some ethnic groups have those larger extended families and there's much more expectation that the generations care for each other than other ethnic groups. And we also know that does account for income brackets, too. And then this gender divide of roles. They're, they're the two key factors.
0: OK, there's one question. Um that just follows up on that. So I'm going to ask that. And then I go to one by Marek Brusla. But um, the question from Marcello Ramilla is an MC alumnus who asks, is there any insights of mixed couples so in terms of maybe different nationalities, different ethnicities, different backgrounds, different class? Do you have any insights? On yeah, that?
1: so lots of the sample is that. And I'll say that's myself as well. So my husband's from Sicily and I'm from, from the UK. So I'm living that life now. Um, What we see for these couples is there tends to be two big pinch points. One is managing the boundary between the nuclear family and the extended families, because very often our extended families, when we're mixed race or mixed nationality and I would also say mixed culture couples we may be the same so let's take Belgium as an example it's a tiny country and yet we think there's the Flemish side and the French side very different cultures so it's not even necessarily about the same race or or nationality it may be within a nationality we have very different cultures there can be hugely different expectations on a couple and that can create really big frictions in a couple, which are maybe less so than if you you know, got together with the girl or boy next door and we all had a very similar culture. So that's one thing. And this can particularly come out if and when you have children. And this can be very difficult because then it's not just the grandparents that are producing pressure, but we know that when we become parents for those working couples who do, we tend to fall back on our culture of origin. So this is the way we should do things. And I always think, um, so I, ha- I have two children, we have two children and, and um, we have them in France. So in a third culture, and I always think about a silly example, but what can you not eat when you're pregnant? And in the UK, all my f- relatives were calling saying, don't eat this, don't eat that, don't eat that. The Italians were doing the same thing, but a completely different set of food. And I go to my French doctor and he'd say, well, you can eat anything as long as it's from a good shop. <laughs> so it's a silly example but it's one of those examples where all these pressures coming from different angles. Great, thank you. The next
0: question is from Marek Rosler. He's a fellow life scientist originally, has an MBA and is now a recent MSc student in behavioral science and he's interested in your own career and your own journey and specifically how you came from genetics over an MBA to becoming a PhD in organizational behavior and now writing
1: books? (laughs) So so I'll tell you the honest answer. Both of my parents are academics. So my dad is an economist and my mother's a biologist. And my brother and I, very unsurprisingly, he went to university and studied economics and I went and studied genetics. And at the end of our degrees, both of us realized this is really not for us. So we took a different tact. So I think that initial choice was more kind of lack of ideas following our parents. And then, you know, we eventually found our way. So, yeah, but it's been an interesting journey.
0: So then there's also the influence of your family and your life. So that's exactly, exactly. There's a question from May Mir. How does earning capacity impact the role of each uh, that each brings to the relationship? So the
1: question maybe about economics, household economics. It's really interesting. and. It's, um, it's really difficult because <laughs> on the one hand, of course, money is important, right? We need money, we need financial security for all sorts of reasons. However, when you look at the data, for example, on life satisfaction and happiness, we actually see that the level of income we need is actually quite low. And it's probably lower than most of us earn. And so money can be a real trap for couples in two ways. One is we can get on what we what social scientists call the hedonic treadmill. So if you think back to your undergraduate student days, you were perfectly happy drinking a £2.50 bottle of wine, right, then you get your first job and now it's a £5 bottle of wine. And then you get a promotion, then it's a £7 bottle of wine, it's wine, right? But suddenly our expectations rise, same with cars. If you think about the first car you owned versus the car you own today, it's probably a lot nicer, but it does exactly the same thing. And so we need more money, not because we really need it, but because our expectations rise. And this can really trap us in couples because what it can be is, well, let's imagine Ilka and I are a couple for a minute. Well, Ilka earns more, but we really need that nice new car. So Ilka's job should take priority. If that's happening in your couple, you need to be very careful because yes, money is important, but we very few of us work for money alone if you think of why this job versus another job it's very rarely for money it's because i like the colleagues i'm really interested in the topic etc so it can be a little bit of a red herring that can catch couples into a dynamic where one person gets privileged and the other person not needlessly i think also with the hedonic treadmill we need to be careful because the huge benefit of being in a working couple is you can buy yourself choice if you save I mean, I'm not suggesting you don't spend anything, but if you save, err on saving rather than spending, you can afford a career transition, you can afford a sabbatical. There's lots of things you can afford that non-working couples cannot. But if you keep on the hedonic treadmill and before you know it, you're buying 25 pound bottles of wine, you've destroyed that, that optionality. So we need to be very careful about what does money mean to us and how can we use it for opportunities as opposed to keeping up with the Joneses. Okay,
0: great. There's
1: a question from, actually two questions, Guillaume Pogam,
0: sorry again for not pronouncing your name correctly, and LSE alumnus now doing a PhD in Oxford. And he had two short questions on the issue of the models of primary and secondary careers. The first question is, have you looked at the correlation between income and the model chosen? And it's a dual primary model enabled by higher incomes, which allowed to have good private childcare, someone to take care, And then the second part of that question is, is the turn-taking model genuine or does it start as an intention to take turns, but then the partner who starts a secondary is away from the labor market, loses labor market skills, employability, and then actually ends up maybe being more in a secondary position.
1: Yeah, yeah. So let me take the first part first. Um, First of all, it depends where you live, right? We know that some countries have much better childcare systems than others that cost a lot less. So, for example, in France, um, the child even from birth is about €3 Euros an hour, which is, makes it affordable for everyone. So there's a, a very strong cultural element here. But what we see is it's not as simple as the more we earn, the more choices we earn. Because if we earn very little, we very often have no choice but to be double primary. So it's not quite as straightforward a correlation as that. It really depends on the culture we're in, and it also depends on the... Um, you know, ca- can we afford it? Is, is that a choice we can choose because we can afford or we don't afford so we can have it? And in the middle, we tend to see more variation. So it's a kind of, it depends answer, but it's a complex situation. Yeah, you've hit the nail on the head with the turn taking. The real big issue of turn taking is when is it my turn? Right? When do we swap turns? And the, th- this is much less likely to be successful, but it, it can be successful. And it's successful when couples really negotiate all the aspects of it. So I was talking to a couple actually last week and she said, we're turn-taking and we thought we'd got it right. Like we agreed it was eight years and she would take, he would lead the eight years where they had small children and then they would switch and he said, well, it's my, it's my son's, it's coming up to his eighth birthday. So I sat us down, bottle of wine and was like, okay, it's time to switch. And he was like, no, we're only six years in. And she was like, but hang on. our son's like, he's going to be eight next month. And he was like, No, 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 the eight years didn't start then. The eight years started when we moved for my job, right? So this is a lesson that you've really got to negotiate it well for turn-taking to work. Otherwise, yes, it can become a smokescreen that really turns into a a primary secondary.
0: I have a question myself, and then I go on to ask Alice's question. But I was wondering, going back to the first part of, is it, do people talk about, how do the people talk about their income? Because what I find striking is that I often hear, and it's also an example in your book, that the woman says, oh, it doesn't really, I don't really have to work because a ha- m- more than half of my income gets, goes into childcare. And that and that is an understanding that we have very separate incomes and I earn more or less than my partner. But if you would put it together, you would maybe only say, well, that's just a quarter of our income, so it's worth me or uh, us using uh, child care. So is there also something about
1: how people see their shared incomes and their shared? Yeah, it is such a great point, Elka. So a lot of this is the perspective we look upon our couple. You've hit the nail on the head. Just like the peer prioritization, it doesn't really matter what you choose. It's the lens in which you choose it. Now, this isn't to say we should all have joint bank accounts and share everything, although I, I do that, just, just to be perfectly honest. Um, there are couples who do it well who don't do that, who pool money, but it's about thinking of this as us, as opposed to you versus me. So there tends to be these two mindsets. When couples get into a you versus me mindset, it's this zero-sum game, which I'm sure at LSE, most people know what a zero-sum game is. It's like that pie that if you get a bigger piece, I get a smaller piece. That is the road to hell for a couple. There's also this mindset, which is the us mindset, right? Which is more of a positive sum game. Like what is this opportunity? Even if it's Ilka's career opportunity, what might it get for us as a couple? And it turns out with exactly the same, or roughly the same opportunity or choice, that mindset influences hugely what couples choose and also um, how they make sense of their choices and how happy they are afterwards. So it's really about if you're thinking of in that zero-sum game, I would uh, try and back away from that <laughs> that framing. Well, there's a question from Alice
0: Morgan, who's also currently an LSE a student in organization social psychology. And Alice has asked, I wonder if the data shows any difference based on job industry. Some industries seem more wedded to long hours and part-time is not realistic or not accepted. Yeah. If couples are in those industries, especially those with children, does that forced choices that couples would not otherwise make.
1: Yeah. And so the classic extreme example here is law firms, right? Which I'll say now are a nightmare for working couples. I have to say though, there are very few things that extreme, but let me tackle the extreme and then we come back to the average. So I think if you and your partner are both joining law firms, bon courage as the french would say it is going to be extremely difficult because of that environment and because for those of you who don't know law firms you'll build every i think it's every six minutes of work you have to tag so it's incredibly long hours very high expectation it just makes it very very difficult that said if we come back to the normal range uh, of things um what we see there's a couple of dynamics here first if you look at the work productivity research of which there's a, a vast amount we see that particularly in the professional jobs where we're using our brains rather than our hands we once we get past about 45 hours a week our productivity drops off a cliff and so what we see is there's not many benefits from working really, really long hours. Now, of course, we all have weeks where we need to pull it out of the bag. I'm not talking about that, I'm talking about an average. And so there's some really interesting research out there which shows that even in those high pressure professional services organizations, the people who do the best, and when I say best, I mean, objectively, they get the promotions, they get the pay rises, and in their family, they can balance things are people who pretend to work long hours, but are actually working less hours. And this is really interesting research by a good friend and colleague of mine, um, and Erin Reed. And she's shown this very robustly, that um, it doesn't pay. And the best thing to do in those situations is to fake it. So what I would say is if you're looking at an extreme job, yes, that's the case. But for most other jobs, it is manageable. I'm not saying it's easy it is manageable if we're really smart about it and I think the good employers are really wising up to this productivity research now and taking it seriously. It's great
0: that you mentioned Erin Reid's work because we discussed it last week and we I interviewed Erin as well, so I, it's one of my favorite uh, articles that you just mentioned. We have another question from Yolanda Plavo. She's also a student in organizational social psychology and she's wondering, how is this model changes if at all when there are major career related changes for example if the red winner loses their job and has to rely on the income of the other member or if someone who's usually stayed at home decided to start their career later in
1: life so what happens yeah so talk. first of all what i what i didn't say and i should have said is these are not decisions you can take once and they're going to last you for 40 years this should really be an open ongoing conversation as opposed to like a, we've cut our wrists and written in blood and that's it. Um, And in fact, I certainly recommend you renegotiate and revisit these at least once a year and definitely at every major transition point. So this should be an active agreement as opposed to the kind of contract you sign and then then put in the drawer. It would be strange if this didn't change over the course of your working life. It's very normal, sometimes driven by job changes, also sometimes driven by life changes. The obvious one is having children, but also as we get older and maybe we need to do elder care for our parents. I think COVID has been a time of rethink for many people where they're rethinking these deals. So so yeah, this is about revisiting this every so often, but definitely once a year and definitely every major transition. Great. We also have a question
0: from Hannah. She is also a student in our department in social and organizational psychology. And she asks, how can we continue to negotiate our positions in long-distance relationships? Are the results of your studies different for these type of arrangements as couples?
1: It's a great question, Hannah. And I think many of us these days have long-distance relationships or maybe started in long-distance relationships and hopefully one day got together. The first thing I'll say about long-distance relationships is they're okay to manage over the short to medium term. They're very difficult to manage over the long term, the data shows, So I think in in a long distance relationship, it's really important to have an eye on the end game, if I can put it like that. This this idea of how long is this going to run for and what is the plan to kind of get us closer together? And what that does is it takes some of the heat off these discussions if we can see an end to this. So this is the first thing. The second thing is I think in long distance relationships, you have to go the extra mile to be even more open. Because it's very easy when you're apart to start imagining things right, that aren't really real. So I think we have to over-communicate a little bit in those, in those long-distance relationships um, and, um, and think about what that end game is.
0: Great. Then the next question is from Johanna. She doesn't tell us where she's from. Um, have you seen any patterns and general regarding who brings up these discussions? Uh, on principle, on boundaries, on values and so on. Is it the women in heterosexual couples, for example, who initiate this conversation or did you not
1: see any changes? So certainly that's the stereotype, right? We imagine men avoid these conversations and women rush to them. It's actually not what I found, especially in the younger generations. I think if we look at the maybe older 50s, that pattern may have been there, but in the younger generations, not. I think often there's differences between how we want to talk about them and the words we put on them. But in my experience, most people, men and women, are very happy to have a conversation about what do we want out of life, right? What, what makes for a good life? What are our long-term goals? I think, um, and, you know, how can you support me? What do I need from you? I think it's about getting it to this simple language as opposed to um, sometimes we approach this as, oh, my God, this is a huge conversation and I've got to get it right. It's not, it's the kind of conversation you have with your friends all the time. Like, where do you see yourself going? What do you want out of life? What do you need? This is not about, you know, psychoanalysis. This is not about these hugely deep emotional conversations. It's about the stuff that really matters. And I think most of us are very happy to have those conversations. And um, there's a
0: question from Henry uh, Ko- Kochi. Um, And I think you touched on that already, but maybe would like to hear a little bit more about that. Do you see any differences
1: in same-sex couples? Yeah. So the main difference that appears in same-sex couples, the main benefit, if I can put it that way, is that if we're in a same-sex couple, we tend to be released a little bit from the gender dynamics. And these can be really pernicious in working couples, the expectations on men versus women that are just, we're a little bit freer if we're in um, a same sex couple in terms of those those gendered expectations, which is a big tip. Um, I think that depending on where you live and what culture you live in, obviously there can be, it can be more challenging to be accepted, to be kind of enveloped in a group, but luckily in many of our societies that's changing very quickly. And actually what we see when we look at the data, there's a, there's a lovely study out last year and I'm struggling to think of this study's author but it will come to me on um, the evenness of split and investment in childcare, and it turns out that same-sex couples actually tend to do a better job than than mixed-sex couples in terms of sharing the load and in fact gay men as fathers are the people who invest the absolute most in their children more than more than gay women who, who are a couple and more than heterosexual couples either the women or men in them so gay fathers get top marks. <laughs> okay, We have a question from Ying-Fai Hello, ying What change would
0: it make if taking on the role of um, religion and culture? So is is there anything uh, how people talk about religion or culture that influenced some of the
1: negotiations? Yeah, so religion tends to be pretty wrapped up in culture. If we think in terms of the cultural expectations of gender, for example, that's quite often rooted in religion of, of our culture so we can say if i take my situation the sicilian culture my husband is from is, is very catholic and the strong expectations about the roles of men and women traditionally we might think of the middle east in terms of that some parts of africa etc., southern europe tend to have that so it's pretty it's pretty tangled up with national culture the way that is different is obviously if we've rooted ourselves and put ourselves in another na- national culture. And then we have this juxtaposition where we may have an, a religious culture, which says one thing, and the national culture, which says something else. And that's where we can see these real schisms between generations. So very often the first generation follows that, that culture and the religion of origin, and the second generation are more the culture of acculturation. And that's where these tensions in particular can occur across the boundaries, which I was talking about a little bit before.
0: Right. We're coming to the end of our session. We have a few more minutes. So we ask. I have a question from Christina, who's in Paris, and if I have time, I have a question, but maybe not. So Christina asked, are there data about the synergies and couples that work, even if not specifically in the same sector, that suggests that individual resilience and leadership skills are improved when partners also work and the couple benefits from the experience of both?
1: Yeah, definitely, Christina. And this is really interesting research, actually. And we see that in this divorce rate that I started with. So something's going on there. And the interesting question is what? Um, And what we see is when couples kind of get into a groove and they're supporting each other, we get these kind of virtuous circles that are created and these virtuous circles, I think, kind of compose of, of three things. One is the support, right? I kind of understand what you need. Even if I'm not working in the same area, I get what it means to be a working person with a family and stuff so I can support that way. There also tends to be a kind of role modelling of each other and an inspiration that I see you get a promotion I'm spurred on. I'm like, oh, yeah, like that inspires me to do something else. So we can see this idea of kind of pulling each other up in terms of, um, in terms of inspiring each other. And then there's some really fascinating research on spillover effects, which is the positive and negative spillovers between work and home. And what we see is both positive and negative spillovers. And this tends to be about energy rather than time. So if we're feeling good at work and we're getting energy from work, we tend to translate that to home and to our relationship, which can then knock on to our partner's work. So you sort of get this ping pong across. Now the downside of that is it can work with negative energy and stress as well. But when we get into this positive vibe, what we can see is couples really sort of pull each other up. So yeah.
0: Good, so we have time for my question and it's actually related to um, our work here at the LSE. So what can, we have a careers um, advisor, so people can ask for careers. How can this, all your insights, I think it's so important to think about career and career development as something that is in a system. How can we implement that in career development, in making choices, but also in giving other people advice?
1: So if I... people, well, I, think, I think that word you used, system, is, is everything, right? Traditionally, when we've given career advice or we've thought about careers, we've treated people as isolates, right? What do you want to do? What will be best for you? But very, very few of us are in that position for good reason, whether it's a partner, whether it's family, whether it's friends, We are all part of systems. What I find very strong in my research is people who take into account the system tend to do a lot better subjectively, but also objectively. And that's this spillover research, right? If we're feeling solid at home and happy at home, we're likely to do better in our careers and vice versa. So I think it's really important we see the system not as something we need to drag with us and take into account, but actually as something that can really lift us up. And if we're having these conversations early on, and I know there's a lot of MSC students and people who are maybe a little bit earlier on in your careers, these are the best conversations you can have. Because if you can get this stuff kind of right from the beginning, of course, nothing immunizes you against life. You're going to face challenges, stuff will happen, but you're much more likely to weather those storms and get in a place where you feel good about your career and good about your relationship if you start early. So I always say like the first date, Start.
0: <laughs> and can I ask my students about their part? I mean, I find like that's uh, the tricky part for me. If I give people career advice, I feel like if I would ask them about, about their relationship status, that might intrude their privacy. So, how can we, as
1: teachers, as, or yeah, as I, think about, I think it's about showing data and showing we know this stuff is important, and then leaving the door open if people want to talk about it. Of course, we can never force people to talk about things they don't wanna talk about. But I think my experience is is if we show the data and show how important this is and what an impact it has and show our willingness to discuss it, most people want to, but that's just like anything.
0: I totally agree. And
1: I think we are at the end of this
0: session. So this is a very good ending. I'm so happy that we could do this, Jennifer. Thank you so much for your talk, for all your insights. I hope people will be able to read your book. I read it twice. I will have this conversation with my partner tonight about what made, matters most to us in our maybe second transition period, um, since you outed me as being over 40. <laughs> and so uh, thanks all for joining. I hope you had a good time here in our event. And um, yeah, thanks again. And thank you very much to LSE Events for making this ha- uh, possible. And um, everyone, please take care.